Hello, and welcome to PathPod. Today, we're doing our segment around the scope. Today's featured topic is the history of pathology, and we're fortunate to be joined by a number of leaders and experts in this area. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Jang. I'm a cytopathologist, as well as chief of head, neck, and endocrine pathology at Duke. And first, I'd like to go around and let our guests introduce themselves. So first, Dr. Lester. Hi, I'm Susan Lester. I'm a pathologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital. I was chief of breast pathology there for over 25 years, but I've stepped aside now because I really love to do more things like projects in history. Hi, I'm Sanford Nicosia. I'm a medical professor of pathology at the University of South Florida in Tampa. I've been a pathologist for 45 years and researcher in ovarian cancer. And I'm currently the secretary treasurer of the History of Pathology Society. I'm Julie Lemon. I'm a private practice pathologist and a student in the History of Medicine program through Hopkins. I'm Marie-Christine Aubrey, one of the pathologists at Mayo Clinic, and I'm the uh, current president for our History of Pathology Society. Uh, I'm Jim Wright. I'm a professor of pathology and laboratory medicine and pediatrics at the University of Calgary in Canada. Uh, I'm also a pediatric perinatal pathologist at Alberta Children's Hospital. Great. Well, welcome, everyone. I'm so excited to have you all around the table, and I'm really excited to learn more about the history of pathology from all of you. And just to start off with, one thing we always like to do on PathPod is ask folks, how did you get interested in pathology? And that question is for anyone who wants to answer. I was in my residency in gynecology in Rome, Italy. I met my wife and she took me all the way to Chicago, USA. And my second love was pathology. So I switched from GYN to pathology because primarily because I loved, I thought, and I was sure I had more time for research. So I started my residency in pathology in Chicago and then I transferred to the University of Pennsylvania and then at the Moffitt Cancer Center at the University of South Florida in Tampa. Great. I'll go. Like many pathologists, I had an interest in undergrad in forensics and did forensic anthropology in undergrad and decided to go ahead and go to medical school with a plan to do forensic pathology. Life took me in a different direction, and now I'm very happily a general pathologist. Do you think that your interest in the forensic anthropology ties in with your interest in the history of pathology and medical museums? Absolutely. I think that a, a huge part of what forensic professionals are able to do is speak for people who can't speak for themselves. And I think that I've heard that theme lots of times mentioned by people in your podcast, as well as other pathology podcasts right now, that the people who are pathologists really have a calling to interpret for people and things that can't interpret, right? So in forensics, you look at the autopsy. In anatomic pathology, we look through the microscope and name things so that they can be treated. And even in clinical pathology, right, we help interpret numbers into something that needs an action. So forensics generally definitely led me to my interest in pathology. And then specifically the history of pathology, like all things, you're better at it if you understand from whence it came. So I think that's an important part. Absolutely. So I know that in medicine, a lot of times we talk about history and eponyms and things like that. But I think that telling those stories is really important for us as a specialty 
to kind of see where we came from. But then also as humans, we respond to stories, right? So sometimes, you know, I'll tell stories about, you know, the serendipitous discovery of like androgen receptor, for instance, for salivary duct carcinomas to my residents so that if they make a mistake, they don't feel so terrible about it because sometimes the discoveries come from serendipitous things and mistakes and you just never know where, you know, something that you thought might have been an error to begin with might take you in a direction that might be actually very fruitful. So others with their paths towards pathology? Well, I started out, as long as I've known, I wanted to be a scientist. So my father was doing his PhD when I was a child, and I remember being taken to his lab, and we were allowed to drink Coca-Cola out of the <laughs> Oh, <laughs> wow. Which is very exciting. Obviously not something you can do anymore, but um, <laughs> I survived. So I did a PhD in genetics at the University of Wisconsin. And so when you start genetics, you have to decide, are you going to study bacteria, corn, fruit flies, you know? rats, what are you going to study? So I ended up loving tissue culture and did tissue culture for my experiments. But then in genetics, I thought, well, maybe I'll go into medical genetics. So when I went to medical school, so the last, the only other MD in my family was Mary Helen Cullings, a woman in the 1800s. So I really had no experience in medicine. And I remember being at MGH and my medical rotation was my first experience being on a medical ward. (laughs) I was just like, oh, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> and I was sent down to the lab to get a lab result as medical students are wont to do. And I remember seeing the microscopes and it was just like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, this is home. This is where I want to be with cells. But I also remember from, I think it was my first year in medical school, being taken up to building A at Harvard Medical School. And way up in the attic, there was the remnants of this medical museum, the Warren Anatomical Museum. And they had all these gallstones and the bones of a Chinese woman whose foot had been bound, you know, all these kind of strange exhibits. But also in a wooden box there was actually the skeleton of John Collins Warren, the founder of the museum. So this was a man who wanted to educate not only during his life, but also after his life. He really wanted his skeleton to be articulated and still be teaching Harvard medical students today. So his family thought otherwise. (laughs) So he's kept in a box and you can only see him if a member of the family is there. And it's an amazing family. So for over 200 years, there's always been a Dr. Warren continuously at Massachusetts General Hospital, as there is today. And you can imagine he has two kids and they have quite... quite a burden of history on them, but it was through the Warren Museum. So I'm very fortunate. It's just across the street from where I work. I met Dominic Call, the curator. I've been able to help them with projects. That's where I met Julie. That's where I hope Julie will tell you about the project we were involved with and also with Jim and also led. So, so I'm a past president of the History of Pathology Society. So we have two past presidents today and the secretary, obviously, and maybe maybe a future president here as well. So sort of ironically, as part of the project I was doing with Julie on medical museums in 2019, we had Jeffrey Taubenberger from NIH give one of the talks about the 1918 flu epidemic. Little did we know that just one year later... <laughs> Just after, uh, just after the society meeting, we'd all be hit with COVID. So that was kind of interesting coincidence of events because Jeffrey Taubenberger had used museum specimens to sequence the 1918 influenza virus. So that was my long story from drinking Coca-Cola and beakers <laughs> <laughs> to being on this podcast today. Wow, a great story, a great story. Something good must have been in the beaker aside from Coca-Cola, yeah. maybe. <laughs> 
What about you, Dr. Wright? Sure. So I'm also a past president of the History of Pathology Society, and I'll speak a, a little bit to how I became interested in history of pathology. So I've always kind of been interested in history, but I never actually took the time to study it. As an undergraduate, my advisor always substituted a better science course whenever I suggested a history course, and I simply complied. In medical school, I enrolled in an MD-PhD program in experimental pathology. Once again, there wasn't any time for history until one day without telling my PhD supervisor I added a graduate level course in medical history to my class schedule just for the fun of it. And I enjoyed it so much that I started adding uh, other medical history courses. Thereafter, I took uh, courses in history of biology, history of pharmacy, history of botany, history of Japanese medicine, Latin American medicine, various reading courses. And Eventually, I was told I had accumulated enough credit for a Master of Arts in History if I were to write a thesis. And although it greatly irritated my MD-PhD supervisor, I switched into a triple degree program, MD, MA, and PhD. By this time, I had completed my PhD research and had published much of it. And I began a research project on the history of intraoperative frozen section diagnosis while I was doing my clinical rotations. And the end of my uh, last year of medical school uh, in 1984, so I am an old timer, I won the American Association for the History of Medicine's William Osler Medal for the best medical history essay written by a, a medical student in North America. And in my last clinical year, the American Board of Pathology decided to increase the length of pathology residency by adding a clinical year. And so I decided to graduate early, uh, also irritating my PhD supervisor because I only finished the MD and the MA by the time I had graduated and told him I'd return later to finish the PhD, which I didn't actually get around to until much, much later. And so kind of ironically, my PhD supervisor, who was in charge of the medical scientist training program at my medical school, eventually ceased to be mad at me and invited me to speak to the MD-PhD program retreat he was organizing on how not to complete an MD-PhD degree. <laughs> and so when I was a resident, uh, I wrote a couple of history of medicine papers related to my MA degree. Then I dropped history of pathology for about 20 years while I worked as a clinician basic scientist running a, a research lab focused on pancreatic islet xenotransplantation, islet embryology, comparative islet physiology, and transgenic fish expressing humanized insulin. And running a lab required me to really spend all my spare time, you know, basically writing grants and, you know, supervising graduate students or postdoctoral fellows, writing papers, etc. And so I only wrote during that 20-year period, a couple of papers on the history of insulin, and occasionally did book reviews for historical journals. But I really kind of dropped all interest in medical history for 20 years. 
Then I re-embraced history of pathology while serving for 10 years as the head of the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at my medical school in Calgary, where I work now. And I've been extremely active since that time. So I had a long hiatus. Great. All right. Dr. Aubrey? Great life stories. I guess for me, it started mostly before medicine. In fact, well, there was absolutely no doctors in the family. And if anything, growing up, I was terrified of doctors and I really didn't like going to a hospital at all. (laughs) But as a teenager, I came across a book and it was really a book about surgeons, historical figure surgeons that I really fell into that book and enjoyed every one of those stories. And it was very inspiring. That's one thing I like about history of medicine or history of pathology and the stories of all the people that preceded us is how inspiring their lives are and humbling it makes our lives when you think about the accomplishments they did and the times they lived. And this was no different. Reading that made me want to become a doctor, much the surprise of my parents who would have never thought so. And in fact, was the reason probably why I ended up in surgery. So I started actually my residency in surgery, so much inspired from what I read. Life as a resident in surgery was nothing like in the books. And I kind of realized I would never be a great, (laughs) great inspiring surgeon of my own. And I was lucky that as part of our training in surgery, doing a rotation in, in pathology was mandatory. So it was part of our program. And I just remember walking in my pathology rotation, sleep deprived, kind of wondering if this was really truly my calling and having kind of an existential moment and then starting to look at things through the microscope and after a week thinking, okay, this I could probably do the rest of my life <laughs> and that <laughs> that could work for me. And, and you still have that tie with the surgeons and the surgery very closely linked. And, and then of course, during residency, completely forgot about history of anything. And, and it's not until I came to Mayo Clinic for my fellowship training that I got re-embedded in history, really. This institution lives and breathes its history. So it kind of got me back into looking in the past to understand where we're at today and thinking where the road lies ahead. And then I started attending USCAP meetings and realized that there was a companion meeting called the History uh, of Pathology and thinking, wow, that sounds interesting and started attending. But it was always very superficial in terms of I attended, I enjoyed, but it's only in the last few years when I was asked to present and then to get involved in the leadership that I'm starting to really dive back into the stories of the greats of our past. And it's actually very uplifting after 20 plus year in pathology. It's nice to kind of feel re-energized about what you read and, and thinking, wow, there's still so much to do looking forward. So that's, that's my story. Yeah, there's definitely so much to do. And so, you know, talking about the history of pathology, it seems appropriate to maybe ask you to share a little bit about the history of pathology society, how it came about, and a little bit about the history of the history of pathology society, perhaps. So, well, uh, that's very interesting that you ask. My interest in the history of pathology society really began in in the early 90s. I met a professor by the name of Henry Azar, who really introduced me to the concept of the history of pathology society. And uh, through him, I I got involved more and more into the society. The society was conceived in 1994 by Dr. Henry Azar, by the French professor Christian Nezeloff. 
what you jokingly said, and maybe the society, not a society of distinguished professors, but a society of extinguished professors. <laughs> but uh, joking aside, the society is really, it's not very large, about 60, 70 members, but really most of them reads the rules who in pathology. Uh, over the year, I've been fortunate to meet many, many of them, such as uh, those present here, Dr. Robert Young and others. The society was formally incorporated in 1996 and then 97. The first meeting occurred in Orlando in 1997. Uh, it was shared by, by if I am correctly, by Dr. William Hartman. And uh, I gave them my first talk on the beginning of anatomic pathology, focusing on the life and contribution of the movie uh, animal. Uh, there were about 200 people attended that, that first meeting. It was very successful. Over the years, there have been 25 presentations by very distinguished people and a number of very, very exciting topics. Dr. Azar retired in, uh, in, uh, in Tampa and moved to the University of North Carolina to enter a PhD program in medical history. And he received his degree at the age of 71, the oldest PhD graduate in, in the University of North Carolina. I myself, my interest in pathology and in, in history were mostly confined to the history of the Mediterranean basin, being from Italy. But then it converged into the history of pathology. And I was able to visit the University of Bologna, the oldest medical school, the oldest university in Europe. I visited fantastic the old amphitheater where Morgan used to lecture. I visited the University of Padua, where I held in my hand one of the greatest books on anatomy by Vesalius. I went then to the University of Bologna, where I saw beautiful collection of anatomical waxes. And I gave a lecture on, on the contribution of anatomical waxes in teaching pathology and anatomy. So that has been my interest. So society is trying, but it should be expanded uh, under the leadership of past president and now that Mary Christine Hobbit. We are working with enlarge the membership, working the bylaws and so on. So I please ask anybody if you can advertise our society into in your, in your own departments, that would be great. It's always nice to know our roots and uh, because they will know where we came from, as was mentioned, and where we're going. So basically, that's in a brief history of society. And next year, there will be a fantastic meeting in Los Angeles. And that always organizing a fantastic topic on the contribution of women's pioneers in pathology. So I welcome all of you to not only extend a membership quality in your department, but also to participate next year in Los Angeles. Wow. Yeah, that sounds like it's going to be a great session. And I know, Mary Christine, you've been active on Twitter because the History of Pathology Society is now on Twitter, right? And you can follow for all our listeners who want to learn more about pathology history. They are on Twitter at H-I-S-T-P-A-T-H-S-O-C. So HistPath Society on Twitter. And there's already a bunch of really interesting tweets on there. I've got it pulled up right now. Dr. Edith Potter, the name behind Potter sequence. So anyone listening can get lots and lots of neat pathology history pearls from the History Pathology Society. So that's been a great addition to the PATH Twitter sphere. Definitely looking forward to that meeting. Hopefully I'll be there in person in LA. So Sanjay, you mentioned a lot about the medical museums in Italy, for instance. And I know that that's something that's been, as a pathologist pre-pandemic, I loved traveling. And if I ever found that there was a medical collection somewhere in the city that I was in, it was irresistible to go and see the collection. Sometimes it felt a little bit like being at work. I went to the Virkaus collection at the Charité in Berlin and I felt like, oh, there's there's too many jars. It smells like formal and it feels like a day at the gross lab. But I know that Dr. Lemon has done a lot of work with medical museums and collections. Julie, can you tell us a little bit about that? 
So it's sort of funny, it's gonna harken back to my training. So I've got a little bit of setup to do here. I was incredibly lucky to do my uh, residency in the military. So the military trains general pathologists very, very well. And so doesn't do a, a lot of fellowships, right? So it was part of my transition from identifying as, as an aspiring forensic pathologist into a general pathologist, the military played a big part of that. Their forensics is excellent, of course, but that course was not in the works for me. So after the conclusion of my military obligation to pay back my educational debt, I was left with some GI Bill. And because of the way the timing of the requirements and the changes of the GI Bill, I was unable to pass it along to my children. So educational dollars are you know, must be used, right? No educational dollars can go to waste. So because of my interest in history of medicine, I decided to use my GI Bill to do a master's course that had an opportunity to do a concentration in museum studies. So through this course, which is through the Harvard Extension School, I proceeded through my coursework and needed to choose a topic for capstone. So obviously, as a physician, I wanted to do a paper around medical museums. So when I was on campus, I was able to uh, make an appointment to tour the Warren, and there I met Dominic that uh, Susan referred to earlier, and he was telling me that he knew this other pathologist who was also interested in medical museums, and oh, by the way, I think she's trying to present a paper at an upcoming pathology meeting. <laughs> so he gives me the name, and I said, oh, Susan Lester, wait, she wrote the book that taught me how to gross. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> And so I, I reached out, Dominic, you know, hooked up Dr. Lester and I so we could start a conversation and we sort of gathered together several pathologists and medical curators, did a lot of phone calls and a lot of looking to come up with this, this project that we envisioned. So early medical education in the United States was heavily based on anatomic teachings on specimens. And so with that, most medical schools in the country had a very robust anatomic specimen collection, which was the basis of their medical museum. So much so that when Abraham Flexner traveled around the country in the early 1900s, he said that that was the single most defining factor of how good a medical school was going to be, was how good their medical museum was. So based on his book and a few other historic documents, Dominic had amassed a list of a couple hundred medical museums that were in existence at that time. And so we went through and systematically tried to follow down all of them to see how many were remaining. The moral of the story is not very many. Most of those collections have been discarded, destroyed, or subsumed in some way. So the summary is that of all those that were then, only 13 of those museums still existed as of 2019, and only 12 of them were available for research. Interestingly, six had uh, participated in modern biomedical research, you know, as we were presenting, and Dr. Taubenberger was part of our panel we were interested to highlight that component, that potential use of historic specimens in collections like that. Yes. So very small number of them still exist. And we had the idea that we should really start to raise the awareness of these collections, that they were a very at-risk commodity, that they were valuable. And it's important for people in medical schools, right, because pathologists literally know where the skeletons are in the closet, to know where these collections are and to save them from being discarded. A part of that is also knowing how to preserve them and maintain them. Mm -hmm. there, are, there are a few excellent medical museums around the country that have 
active curators and it's not very many. UT Medical Branch also has one. The Warren is there. In- so Julie, so actually this podcast is a great opportunity because as we were going through the list, a lot of these museums just disappeared without a trace. Like no mm-hmm. one kept track. So maybe they still do exist. Maybe they're up in an attic somewhere. Maybe they're down in a basement. So this is a shout out. So anyone, anyone who hears our voices, <laughs> <laughs> if you know, because it is, it's our medical heritage. It's a irreplaceable resource. So once these historical specimens are gone, they're gone. And again, I think Jeffrey Taubenberger's research, we've learned so much from his sequencing of the 1918 virus, which was partly due to the the, uh, collection at the AFIP, partly due to someone being willing to go up and dig out victims from the permafrost. was pretty desperate because sadly he did not know at the time that he was doing it there's actually lungs from Fort Devens because there was a huge outbreak outside of Boston in 19 during the epidemic and so there actually preserved specimens at the Warren that could have been used for his research and he did not know about it so that was part of what we're hoping with this project is to identify the museums that are left and try and connect like Julie was saying so it's a consortium it's museum curators it's pathologists but also the basic researchers to connect them so that they know the material is out there. So this is a shout out if you know of any. <laughs> right, right to us. Are you just looking at the U.S. or are you also going up to Canada or? Well, Jim is our connection. So uh, there is a, a nice museum collection called the Maud Abbott Museum at McGill. Mm-hmm. And so I did kind of help connect Julie with Rick Fraser related to that. So that would be the primary Canadian museum. Susan, do you want to talk about your Italian colleague? Oh, Gabriella Nessi. So there's also a history of pathology society in Europe, and they're very active. And obviously, they have more collections than in the uh, United States and Canada. We would like to uh, extend to Mexico. We've looked, I've tried to see if they have collections there. We don't have a connection. So if anyone has a connection for anyone or, or anywhere in South America, that would be great. On a separate similar subject, on the Albanian institutions run courses on medical history or medical pathology history. Do we know? We do have a humanities in medicine series through the Trent Center at Duke. And so we often have lecturers um, and topics of the history of medicine. We have actually a history of medicine collection in the Medical Center Library building that has some books. There's a whole collection of really interesting pieces there that usually is tucked away from view. And this is, of course, a little bit kitschy, but around Halloween time, pre-pandemic, they would bring out some stuff from the collection and have it out for viewing and have candy. And as someone who loves the history of pathology and Halloween and actually candy as well, it was a really nice session that they had. So the museum collections, they certainly bring up issues of ethics and, you know, did these people want to be presented, not be presented? So in addition to the historical aspect, there are really interesting ethical aspects going back as to how these specimens were collected, who should be shown in museums. Again, I think it's tragic that probably the only one person who wanted to be displayed as a skeleton. <laughs> in a box. There's so, many, there's so many skeletons on display from people who certainly didn't give their permission and certainly documented cases of people who specifically did not want to be displayed and who weren't being displayed. Whereas, bless his heart, John Collins Warren wanted to go on teaching and 
he's now in a box. But anyway, the, I think the ethical components of medical museums is a very interesting one. Are folks in the field of the history of pathology working on these ethical issues? I think sort of tangentially. So Dominic Hall, because he's actually, you know, these specimens are in his hands. So I think the curators are, are very involved in that. So certainly there's been a lot going through the collections and returning anything connected to Native Americans has been a mm. big project. Trying to identify people if they can and return those remains. And it's a really hard to balance between what's scientifically important and, you know, probably what isn't really scientifically important. The anatomist community is heavily engaged in those discussions about the agency of display of human remains. There, There's active work in that in their field now. And on the topic of education in medical schools for this, I can say that there are several physicians in my history of medicine master's program who are in the course specifically, so they can teach that at their medical school. So that's their charge is to look at ethics through the lens of the history of medicine to their medical schools. We, we had for about 10 years, a course in history of pathology, history of medicine, directed tailored for graduate students. The course was successful run in the summer. I don't know if the course is still on to be sure, but for 10 years it was very successful. Primarily it was a course oriented to graduate students, master of science, master of anatomy type of students. So one of the interesting modern possible workarounds for this is to do 3D printing. Mm. And so maybe print specimens and present them as opposed to the actual specimen. And so the Warren Museum <laughs> is most famous for Phineas Gage, the man uh, yes. iron go through his skull. Mm. And so actually I have a 3D printed model of his skull. <laughs> which is pretty neat to have, but is that okay? Because his mother gave permission to have him exhumed and the, you know, his skeleton oh. taken, but he did not give permission. Then I also have a 3D printed, it's a Phineas Gage skull pencil holder. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so you could say, well, is that ethical? Is that, you know, this brings up all these questions of how do you deal with these historical specimens and how do you continue to treat people with respect because um, certainly Phineas Gage has been used as a model example in teaching, you know, for many, many years. And so we certainly want to respect his memory and that we've been able to learn from him, but maybe the pencil holder was a little bit too far. <laughs> yeah. Well, certainly with new technology, 3D printing, the amazing capacity we have to scan slides and whole slide mounts, those new technologies bring up totally new questions of ethics of who owns that digital data or the picture of someone's lymphocytes or um, the 3D reconstructions and models. So I think that it's another area where it's really exciting that technology is advancing really quickly, but probably a little bit faster than the ethical elements of how quickly we're able to process the ethical implications of what we're doing. And just, you know, I was showing the 3D printed vertebra I have here. I do a lot of 3D printing as well. I've been thinking about 3D printing as an adjunct to gross education. So I have 3D printed larynxes and 3D printed oh. maxillary sinuses in our gross lab here at Duke, but I hadn't thought about the element of using that for preservation of collections in three dimensions as well. So very interesting. The number, the number of autopsy has been decreasing steadily over the last... Uh, 20, 30 years, is that affect the preservation of tissue for, for historical reasons? I think so. The evolution of, or perhaps the devolution of medical museums associated with medical schools is so interesting, and it just really parallels every technological advancement you can think of, right? 
because medical school started as anatomic-based education on gross specimens. And then as the microscope became more important in diagnosis, then those, the concentration moved really from the gross anatomy level to the microscopic level. And now we're going even further than that into the molecular level. And through this time course, pressures on the medical schools for space, right? Anatomy labs are very large and very expensive to maintain. So those spaces become perceived as less important as the attention of medical education seems to be away from anatomy. And just to come back to the question of ethics, also now consenting families to keep specimens for collections is something important to do. And not all families will want to consent to not have all organs go back to the patient body and to be interred. So that's another dimension that a hundred years ago, they didn't really need to be too concerned with. So it makes a big difference also in terms of even in the last 20, 30 years of what we are able to keep for education sometimes. Yeah. And that's another area where there is a little bit of a parallel with modern biobanking, right? Because just like you can potentially go back to medical museums as a biobank of sorts, we spend a lot of time thinking about the intricacies of consenting patients mm-hmm. to have their tissue put in a biobank. And it's the more technology there is, the more complicated our jobs become when structuring those consent processes. Yeah. So- Alder Hay organ retention scandal in the UK several decades ago drastically changed you know, the autopsy consent procedure in mm-hmm. Canada as far as getting explicit you know, consent from families to be mm-hmm. able to retain you know, organs for either teaching or research. And so basically in our institution, there's a checkoff box that the parents have to explicitly state whether or not any organs or tissues after the completion of the autopsy can be uh, used for future teaching and or research. So perhaps we should change the name of our society from history of pathology society to the history of minimally invasive pathology society. <laughs> so, Jim, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with what happened in the UK, could you give a brief a summary of what happened? Yeah. So basically what happened in kind of the would have been probably early 1990s, there was a, a pathologist, Dr. Van Velsen, who was hired to work at Alder Hay Children's Hospital. And he eventually moved to Canada, but a number of years after that, it was determined that he had amassed quite a collection of organs. And these, there ended up being a parliamentary inquiry related to this. It was 600 pages long, and it greatly changed how organs and tissues are perceived in the UK. It resulted in Tissue Authority Act that came in, I think, maybe about 2004. And uh, the, the Tissue Authority Act made it a requirement for all pathology departments to register every bit of human tissue they had. So you can imagine how difficult this would be. And it applied going back 100 years. And so this also affected museums, all types of other types of uh, displays 
uh, all had to be registered in this uh, kind of huge bureaucracy. Because Dr. Van Velsen also worked in Canada, it had uh, a lot of impact in Canada. And when the scandal first came out, it was worldwide news. I was at a meeting in Miami and I saw coverage in a Chinese newspaper about this. It really kind of shook the world. Time Magazine picked it as one of the top 10 scandals of the year. So interesting that reflects back to, again, early medical education in the United States when the bodies that were used for anatomy education were those of criminals. And it was literally part of the punishment to think that your mortal remains would be used in educating medical students. And certainly those individuals didn't have agency in saying how their remains would be used. Seems to be a story that keeps repeating itself. Yeah, obviously the history of pathology is not always happy stories or positive stories. I was wondering if any of you have some favorite stories from the history of pathology, positive or negative, that you'd like to share. Well, I, I was in the, the, the University of Vienna, Josephino Institute, and then I learned a very interesting story that in the late 1878 or something, the university commissioned some wax or entire bodies with the lymphatic and the vascular system. Those wax were transported to, to the Alps in the winter time. And the wax being with this, many of those ex exhibits broke down into multiple pieces because of cold weather. And I thought that was a very interesting story which I learned just by visiting that particular exhibit. Hmm. So maintaining our specimen collection at a good exactly. temperature, very important, very exactly. important. Exactly. Wax or no wax. One yes. thing I really like about doing breast pathology, because it's really the only cancer that has a history, because until we had modern imaging, you could be dying of lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, but you wouldn't know it. And even at autopsy with advanced disease, you might not know where the origin was. So in contrast, we have thousands of years of records of women both diagnosing themselves and leaving these amazing personal narratives of their struggles with breast cancer. And just to hear these stories and sadly, you know, still see it happening today. So I have a plug for two books, like two of my favorite books. So one is Bathsheba's Breast, written by James Olson. So that picks up the story from ancient Babylonia and Egypt. We have stories from women and then just through history. And I love both of these books because both of these authors, they really tell the story through personal narratives, you know, the actual voices of these women. And so James Olson goes from ancient Babylonia, really up to Jerry Nielsen at the South Pole, who diagnosed herself and had to treat herself because she was stranded there during their winter time. And then the story really picks up with the Emperor of All Maladies, another one of my favorite books by Siddhartha Mukherjee. So again, he tells it through the voices of women and it picks up around the 1900s. And even though I lived through the era he's talking about, it's kind of like when you're in the midst of it, <laughs> you go, he, he picks out these threads, explains it. And again, so in my residency in the 90s, it was the, the solid tumor autologous marrow 
program. So that was, if a little chemotherapy is good, then a lot of chemotherapy would be great. So let's give them toxic levels, lethal levels of chemotherapy and rescue them with their bone marrow. So that's an amazing story and, and really about how the legal system gets outruns the, the research system. It's a story that everyone should know. He picks up with the story of HER2. So that was again through the 90s where we kept hearing about HER2 and HER2 and the pharmaceutical companies didn't want to hear about it because they wanted something that would treat everything, not just a few patients, but yet HER2-targeted therapy has completely changed the outlook for those women. So again, if you ever get a chance to hear him speak, he's an amazing speaker. He has amazing stories about the people that he's met, the patients, the families of the patients. So those are my two very highly recommended books that will take you through the entire history of breast cancer. Yeah, I think Dr. Mukherjee was a keynote speaker at CAP a couple of years back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, for me, one of the most inspiring women for me once I got in pathology was Maud Abbott. And we kind of mentioned her through the museum that she created. But for me, that's a happy story because the story of a woman that really dedicated herself to specimens that people didn't understand what they could mean or how important they was, or they weren't quite interested because at that time, we couldn't really treat them or cure them. And despite that, never stopped her from persisting and really taking care of these specimens that she was able to preserve. I mean, the collection now is unbelievable. And I think there's a lot of positive stories like that and, and history around the work of amazing individual and ways of finding role models to inspire the, the new generation of pathologists starting and as they try to define what their career is going to be. Absolutely. So hopefully we'll get to hear more about women role models and use gap yeah. in LA, right? <laughs> exactly. So John Barry, who is the CAP keynote speaker for this year's meeting, his book the Great Influenza, on topic for, for current events. But I must say that the first third to half of his book is a really, really excellent review of the history of medical education in the United States. It really sets the scene about exactly the things we're talking about, about medical museums and the change from gross anatomy level of medical education evolving through microscopic. So that's a great book with, with a summary of that. And more specific to the topic of the history of pathology is Dr. Rosai's book, mm. Guiding the Surgeon's Hand, The History of American Surgical Pathology. It's a great story of the leading medical institutions in the country and how pathology was important in those days. Lots of good reading suggestions. Jim, did you have a favorite story as well? Oh, I think <laughs> it would be hard to pick a favorite story. I, I'm kind of more eclectic in what I do. And uh, so I don't really have kind of a favorite story. I write on anything and everything related to the history of pathology. I think I saw a piece, was it you who wrote the paper on roses and rosettes about Dr. Homer Wright? Yes, that actually, because it was so humanistic, it was actually my co-authors and I had a very hard time you know, getting that published because it kind of delved very much into the personal life of J. Homer Wright, whose wife was a Norwegian singer. And so it was a little too off topic for typical history of pathology. And so that's how it ended up in the venue that it did. So we felt very fortunate to find a home for it, but it's a fun paper. There's also from the institution, a beautiful book that we are familiar with by David Lewis and Robert Young. 
It's called Keen Minds to Explore the Dark Continents of Disease. It's very, 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 very interesting. Very good. Excellent. That's through the Eastern Pathology Service of Mass General. Yeah, good. It's a good book. We'll make sure to have links to all these books for the, the episode notes. Great. Well, we've got a lot of amazing stories and book recommendations and historical pearls from all of you. And I think we have a lot to look forward to. Our listeners can definitely follow the History of Pathology Society on Twitter, get Pathology Pearls, and we'll mark our calendars to attend the History of Pathology session in LA um, and hear more about the legacy of women in pathology. And I would just like to say, Thank you so much to all of our guests today for all of what you do to help us understand the history of our field better and be thoughtful leaders in moving the field forward. So thanks so much to all of you for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for, Thank you for, for having us. us. Thank you.